welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know about our virtual conference on 28 April, Sub-Zero Online. Join Substrate developers from Parity and the community, including Polkadot founder Gavin Wood, as they share their latest work on the Substrate framework. Go register at subzero.parity.io. You can find the link in the show notes. And now, our episode with Shira. Today on Relay Chain, we have my friend and founder of Maiden, Shira Frank. Hello, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, of course, Joe. Hi, this is Shira Frank. Yeah, I'm the co-founder of Maiden, and uh, I come from the political world. So this has been about two and a half years deep down in the technology space, but I'm sure we'll get into my previous work um, on Middle East peace politics and uh, the Iran nuclear deal and other global issues of uh, scale and coordination and distribution of power. Yeah, so that goes into my first question. And when I started this podcast, I set out to never ask somebody how they got into blockchain because that's how every single show starts. And then you came along and you've done so much in your past that you could be doing like literally anything. Um, so I'm not going to ask you how, but I want to know why are you involved in blockchain? Phenomenal. Such, such a good question. So first, I guess I should say what I do in blockchain before I answer that question. Um, so I founded a global user research lab. Maiden Labs is building um, the first hub for actually understanding user behavior um, and future user behavior and trying to make sure that we evolve this technology actually in a way that's co-evolving with users. Um, so why did I get into blockchain? Basically at age 15 was introduced to... Um, the dynamics of wealth inequality and the problems of how to move money around um, impact areas just in general, like how was money moving? Um, and the Women's Foundation of California had a program where they brought in young women and they said, hey, if we're going to give grants to young women, let's have young women decide what are the organizations that are really worthwhile, um, which I think is really important to generally have the people represented um, in the decision-making um, around decisions that affect um, people of that group. So in that exercise of about a year of giving away $75,000 as a young woman, as a 15-year-old, I was shown this graph and they, the one of the organizers just drew a big triangle and she's like, okay, this is where the money is. And she pointed the t to the top of the triangle. This is where the power and resources are. They're concentrated. We have a society where power and wealth and financial choice making is generally concentrated in very few hands. But this is where it's needed. And she pointed to the bottom of the triangle and she's like, there's so many projects and so many systems that really need resources. How do we move them? And at age 15, I don't know what it was, but the simplicity of that graph, I said, oh, I can do that. I can be the bridge. I can learn how to move this money. And I spent the next 20 years or almost 20 years of my career working in um, at different scales, moving money. And what I learned in that process was that it was, I was A, very good at it. And I learned the reason I was very good at it is because I really, A, respected and loved people. And you really need trust to be established to get somebody to want to relinquish the wealth they have or the money they have. Um, they have to believe that it's worthwhile and that it's in line with their values. And they're only going to do that if they trust the entity or person who's talking to them. But the other thing I learned, even though I was good at it, it was so slow. It was human 
by human by human. And not just that, even when you got someone to trust you and to move a million dollars over whatever it was um, to change a dynamic. And in my case, the last part of my career was spent moving political dollars. So how do we make sure we have a diplomatic deal with Iran? Well, partly you have to fund senators who are going to vote for that deal. In order to do that, you have to get people who've never been political in their life, but who have a lot of money to fund senators in line with their peace values. So the problem was I realized we were never going to move money fast enough for the pace of the problems and the scale of the problems. And so that's ultimately was like the first why was um, I really got disillusioned. So I quit politics after the Iran nuclear deal passed. I, A, was pretty burnt out, but it was more that I was clear that political power and financial power, I thought that was the zenith of power. Like if you could move both of those at the same time, oh my God, you could change so many people's lives. But I actually realized that's not true because you can have regime change. And then all this work we'd done to, to really change the culture of U.S. politics when it came to the Middle East, and that's what we had done. We hadn't just gotten a deal signed. We'd actually literally changed the conversation in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress around Israel and around the Middle East to a very effective lobby and organizing office. And even then, it was like, oops, and then you elect another person, and there's a centralized party in command and control, and boom, all of that work is done and you have a new tinderbox in the Middle East and a new potential of war, um, nuclear global war. So I was really looking for what's deeper, what's more pervasive, what's more systemic, what's more fundamental than politics and money. And that's when I started to say, well, that's economics, that's technology. And so blockchain was kind of the first place that I landed after I quit my work in politics. And that was my hope. My hope was maybe I'm in a place where we can re-engineer the fabric of how power and resources move. What was a time in the past when blockchain would have actually helped solve one of these trust issues? Because that's like what it ultimately was, is like you could get somebody to trust you, but trust was the bottleneck. Totally. Yeah, so that was actually the first blockchain project I worked on was something called Distributed Giving Project. And it was specifically around philanthropy. It was like, what system could we put in place that would enable a ton more money to flow? And not just millions of dollars, like 50 bucks. The hypothesis we had was, okay, would people give 50 bucks to a, a family, you know, maybe a single mom and her kids, knowing it would go to groceries, say? So in the U.S., there's a food stamp program that gives money to buy food to families that don't have enough income to buy food for their families. And the allocation of money hasn't gone up in decades, right? So families are still getting the amount of money they might have gotten in 1980 or 1970, which is not enough money. So every few weeks they run out. And is there's that in absolute or relative terms? Um, I mean, I, it's in like, they haven't increased the allocation percentage wise. So more relative terms, but like it's meaning there's about two weeks out of the month that most families on food stamps don't have the money for food. Okay. So I'm not sure the exact, like the amount of time I know with the, with the Republican Congress, they like, they might increase it like a few dollars, but they don't increase it percentage wise to inflation. Okay. Yeah. And it hasn't even been increased that many times dollars wise either. Right. It's a very static number. I don't know the exact quantities, but it's like, you'll look at this and you're like, oh my God, like, how can you live off of $40 a week? Nobody can live off of $40 a no. week with family. So we know that there's this pervasive problem. We also know that lots of people panhandle on the street, but who gives people 50 bucks? Nobody. You don't know where it's going to go. You have no idea. It could go for drugs. It could go to someone else. 
So that was the first project I worked on. And um, we did a really effective pilot. We got um, men in the Denver recovery program. So they were recovering from some kind of drug addiction. And we got stores in the neighborhood where a lot of these men would kind of meander to accept Bitcoin. And then we would pay them back in dollars. So the stores were going to get the dollars and not need to deal with the hassle. And the men in the recovery program were getting Bitcoin on their phone. And we wanted to test, like, will this work? And so that was the first project I work on. And I do think that philanthropy is a space that can be really profoundly disrupted by blockchain. Um, I will say that having worked on that for just a few months and then seeing some of the other projects like Giveth and others that have been working in this, it's still really early days. Nothing has really figured out how to communicate to donors why this is trustworthy. I mean, we still have some of the same problems around education. When was the Bitcoin thing? When you were This was two and a half years ago. So summer of 2017. Okay. So yeah, still a while ago. Yeah. So I, I do think that eventually blockchain can help um, with the trust kind of barrier when it comes to not just deciding to give the money and know it's going to go where you think it's going to go, but to give it repeatedly. So another part of what happens in philanthropy is you spend a ton of time getting the first yes, but you spend just as much time almost getting the second and third and fourth yes. It's like a relationship and you're constantly asking them to marry you over and over again and doing the engagement proposal. It's like very energy intensive. So I, I do think there's a chance for blockchain to disrupt all of that. I have to say that in my first few months in this space, I was very excited about the use cases and solutions of what blockchain could do for these very large problems we'd been having forever. And I pulled that back pretty quickly because what I realized was that it wasn't going to ever actually solve those problems at scale if the culture of the blockchain ecosystem, the people within the blockchain ecosystem, and the how we were doing business part of our work and how we were solving problems part of our work was actually different. So I took a step back from the like, okay, how do we use blockchain to solve difficult problems? And actually went to what are we doing differently in our blockchain ecosystem that's going to prepare us to solve these problems that haven't yet been solved? And that's when I turned my work internally. And that's when I launched Maiden. Okay. And so do you want to give us like an overview of Maiden now? Sure. So at the beginning, we really just were asking, instead of just the what of blockchain, like I said, the, the solutions, the use cases, who is here and how are they working? So at first, Maiden was really focused on culture. We were really thinking about how we might radically transform who was building these products. And that's still really key. And I don't think the general Web2 or tech community has actually solved inclusivity or diversity and I don't think the people building these systems reflect the intelligence of what's required to actually um, understand the complexity of the problem and then solve at that level of complexity. We stopped focusing purely on culture because we realized there wasn't a business model for it. So we were either looking at starting a nonprofit and going into philanthropy and fundraising in the old model, which I knew was slow and not scalable, or yeah, just doing something really small scale. And we didn't want to do that. We felt like blockchain technology, we have a chance, kind of a historic opportunity, I felt. Um, I mean, I wish I had been very well-educated professional adult at the dawn of the internet. I would have really tried my best to reorient some of what happened then. But we get that chance now. <laughs> so Maiden turned its attention to what's something that can be a business that can address the culture of this ecosystem such that it is evolving new human models at the same time as it's evolving new data and business models. 
Um, and that ultimately, in our view, we started to realize users needed to be co-evolving with makers and makers needed to be co-evolving with users. And so a year ago, we turned our attention to user research and started to figure out where user research was happening, if it was happening, and um, what would need to shift in order for user research not just to occur, not just for good reports to be put out about how people behave and what behaviors might lead to what kinds of product market fits or whatever, but actually how we could socialize this research into companies so that they would be changing their ways of doing business um, that would not lead to exploitation at scale. Yeah, I want to talk about users later, but first um, set a little bit of foundation for like basically like what went wrong in Web 2 that we want to avoid in Web 3. Because this gets to the user question of like, who are the actual users and what are you making for them? Precisely. Um, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about that went wrong. Let's start with the fact that in Web 2, I think everyone would probably agree, there was a lot of idealism and a lot of beautiful values. And I think there still are. Unfortunately, I think a lot of it was much more superficial and kind of virtue signaling. It's like, we're going to bring connectivity to everyone. Um, And we're going to give users what they want. But what if you're giving users what they want, but it's actually a really bad deal? I mean, I think in Web 2, we designed things that people would click on a lot and use a lot and spend a lot of time on, but their autonomy is being taken away. They're being politically manipulated. Their data is not their own. Their power is being extracted and then used to create profit at scale for larger entities. Yeah, I call these orthogonal business models where the revenue stream is orthogonal to the actual service being delivered. Exactly. So we have super orthogonal business models. And like I said, I think users are getting a really bad deal, even though they're quote unquote getting what they want. So I think with Web2, one of the things that we noticed was, again, this question of co-evolution or education. If the makers are evolving at one pace, if the builders of these companies are understanding the capacities of these technologies over here on the right side, but users are completely not present in those processes or aware, and they're finding out much later, just when a product's produced, right, that gives them some kind of dopamine hit, there's really no way to ensure that it's not an exploitational power dynamic and that there isn't an asymmetry of information and an asymmetry of power. So I think if we can like connect the sense-making of our makers with the sense-making of our users, we can prevent makers from basically becoming oligarchs. And I don't think blockchain is going to not become oligarchical just because it doesn't believe it should be, right? I think this is a systemic issue of how things are built. So I think with Web2, I don't think users knew what was coming. So I don't think they were prepared. And I also think that the makers didn't look long-term. So I also think we have an obligation and a responsibility to understand that something at a small scale and a short term technologically as a new technological infrastructure or system might look one way. But if you stretch it out longer term and larger scale, it looks a different way. And we cannot just be analyzing its value or its good or its reason for being at the short term scale. So I think we need to integrate more of a long term analysis and a risk analysis, frankly. So I I do believe that if Web2 had taken the ad model, say that Google adopted to make some money when their VCs were pressuring them, sure, short term, that was a great answer to revenue. But if there had been an awareness then of what that might look like long term and some complexity science 
scientists on staff and anthropologists and psychologists on staff, social scientists involved, they would have pretty quickly said, there's some interesting odd risks of what this might mean at scale. And those of us in blockchain have do not have the luxury of saying we don't know what happens when these decentralized protocols scale. No, we know what happens when decentralized protocols scale. So I think we, we have no excuse to not actually include major threat and risk mitigation at the very beginning of choices we're making about how we are introducing products, what kind of products we're building, and what kind of business models and incentives we're putting into those products. You talked about sense-making. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Um, so sense-making is the process of understanding something. It's not just the content, right? It's not just saying, I want X as a user. Like, I want to know what my friends are doing, so I'm going to go on Facebook. Sense-making would be the process of, well, I want to know what my friends are doing. Why is that important to me? And what happens if I start clicking through here for an hour? I kind of know I'm going to get numb, and then I get kind of depressed, and then I end up staying here for three hours. So like, sense-making is the process of making sense of reality. It's an ongoing process where you can be aware of your own thinking, not just the act of a thought. So by saying connecting the sense-making of makers and users, we're always doing this. We're just often doing it unconsciously. Um, we're making decisions about our decisions all the time and we're thinking about our thinking all the time. We're just often not aware of the repercussions. So what I would hope is that as makers, engineers, company leaders are actually saying, okay, profit matters, for example. So therefore, we're going to shave some autonomy of the user off here just to make sure we make enough profit, right? That's a sense, that's, they're doing sense-making, they're doing profit-based sense-making. At that same time, I would want them to also have the data of how users are behaving and what kinds of thinking they're having about interacting with that project. So I don't think sense-making, it sounds like a big word, but I think it just means like... Um, conscious awareness of how you are experiencing reality and why you're experiencing it that way and the reason for your thinking, the reason for your choice making, the reasons behind your choice. I mean, we talk in blockchain a lot about autonomy or self-sovereignty. And I'm always curious, like, well, can you be sovereign if you're not even aware of why you're making the choice you are? And we often, even in blockchain, I really get very frustrated when we say things like, well, I mean, I think Brave's an incredible company, right? But the act of choosing to, say, get paid to view an ad, like selling your time, right? Well, at scale, what if that became still that people didn't really know what the value of their time was in aggregation? Like there's no way for them to really make, make sense of that. It's an individual choice, but they can't possibly understand the consequence of multiple people doing that. I mean, it's the same with when we give all of our data to Google, right? It makes sense, quote unquote, in the second moment. But if we don't actually have the data of, of how that data is being used in aggregate, there's no way for us to evaluate that choice. Another thing I can say about sense-making, which we didn't really talk about, which is um, our roles in society. Like, what are we? Are we citizens? Like, are makers citizens or human citizens? Like, this idea of individuality and personal identity and, like, I'm doing what's good for me, which drives a lot, it's definitely at the bedrock of a lot of ideology in this space, that breaks down at scale, right, I, I think. And I think we need to figure out how to be able to understand that our individual choices impact the whole and make choices with the awareness of the whole. So do you think in like in web two or not just web two, just current society in general, okay. do you think 
information is being fed so fast. And then like the option of what people want you to do is kind of like, it's like a magician's card force where it's just like, do this. It doesn't give them the time to even think about the information that they're receiving. Their actions happening so fast. Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. And I get a little scared when we talk about, sadly, the way users and usability and UX is brought up in Web3 is to say, we're going to make things so easy. It's going to be so obvious. That's the, that's the goal. That's the golden goal. If we just repeat the ease of making fast decisions in Web3 that Web2 and current society has, how are we going to get different power dynamics or how are we going to get more equitable societies? I mean, I think at the core of Web3, at least as I see it, is an insight that we do need a more equitable society, that we live in a structure where centralized authorities of all kinds are extracting more value than they are offering to the system. So there is a sense of an inequity of structure and power. Um, and that's fantastic. But then there's this huge blind spot um, that's present. And, and it's, you know, in answer to your question, it's like we're basically looking to the same pattern. We're like, well, let's just get as fast and slick and good and easy. And then people will be onboarded into Web3. But like you're saying, then what? If people then don't even have a chance to be clear about the decision they're making, if we're not building tools that actually, I would call it like habituate new patterns, habituate new awarenesses, luckily humans are incredibly adaptable. That's what we've been built to do is to adapt. I mean, our ability to speak language and all these things gives us incredibly high functioning brains and social awarenesses to shift our behavior. But you don't have to do it that drastically. You just often, the way you can shift behavior patterns, you probably know as an athlete, is like 1% better. Like if you keep getting 1% better as a cyclist, you'll get 37 times better very soon, right? Like it, it compounds. And so I think what I'd love to see is that we don't make everything so obvious. We actually make a few things a little curious, a little different. We actually give people choice. If we're going to give people choice, we have to actually make it possible for people to make a choice. It has to be a real choice. It has to be a real choice. Yeah, and I don't think we figured that out yet, which is why we launched Maiden, is let's do the hardcore on-the-ground ethnographic user research to figure out what kind of user flows, what kind of education, what kind of communication, what kind of language, and what kind of actual products, what use cases really match the pain points of people today. And, different, and they're all going to be different across different cultures and different age ranges and different economic needs, et cetera. But what, what are those things that are ready to go now? What are the first beachhead markets for this technology where we can actually give people a new choice and they're ready to make it? They want to make that choice and they're they see and experience the value of it without too much friction. Um, blockchain is like normally a backend technology. So how do you think of a user in this case? Do you think of the person who's actually using an application or like the application itself that's building on blockchain? Who do you think of as the user? Yeah, so for Maiden, we made a very clear choice to focus predominantly on new non-users of any kind of blockchain application or tool. So um, for us, we think that, I mean, there's a lot of people that need to be studied and a lot of intelligence that's missing in this space. Um, but what we're trying to do is go really far ahead. Um, so it, instead of focused on like current people using applications today and try to figure out how to make that easier for them or how to retain them if they're dropping off, like people who've opened a Coinbase account but dropped off, we're not that interested in those people because we don't actually think the products that are being built today are scalable, that these are the products that are actually usable in the mainstream. So we're looking at, we ask at first, I mean, we're just going to be starting the research over time, we'll ask different questions, but at the outset we have to ask, okay, 
what are the things that blockchain technology does maybe 10x times better than other technologies? So we might look at things like privacy. We might look at things like disintermediation. We might look at things like security, trust, these kinds of things. And then say, where are there behaviors of people today on the ground that those behaviors match to those added values that blockchain has to offer? And let's go into the ground, live lives with those people and figure out where that intersection actually is and then find what is blocking it from them using a particular product. Yeah, and this is like, I've had conversations before that like if you make something 10% better, it doesn't matter. It has to be 10x better to actually replace. But I like this more nuanced or granular thinking of like, blockchain can be 10x better at this thing, but you're only going through the user experience that's 80% as good because there's going to be these extra moments where we make you think. Completely, completely. And I think you're totally right. Um, And frankly, if we're not changing people's awareness or behavior, why are we even instituting Web3? Because if you're not going to change people's awareness or behavior, essentially you're just building a new oligarchy on top of the technocrats that built this shit that said, no, we've built it better for you now. We've rearranged power dynamics. We've redistributed wealth and choice making. Trust us, it's better and use it. I I have no idea how that is any better. It's completely fragile. It's not anti-fragile. And there's no way that over time and at scale that will actually create any less centralized power. I mean, there's a lot of good literature that talks about how resources and wealth kind of almost naturally centralized. There's a kind of, as humans, we haven't yet quite figured out how to buck that curve. And I think, I mean, the founding fathers of the U.S. had some interesting theories about this. They would talk a lot about education, public education. They would say there can be no democracy without public education. You do not, I think Thomas Jefferson said, would you rather have a a government um, with no newspapers or newspapers with no government? And he said newspapers with no government because you cannot have a meaningful government without education. And so I think if we believe that we're going to create something radically new in our financial system or in our governance systems um, without actually changing what people understand or how they understand at the point of even using a product, then we're very, very woefully naive. And we will see not just Web 2 levels of corporate aggregation of power, but I think something far worse. Yeah, so like on the education topic, what is the responsibility of a user as far as like learning about this technology? Because it's it's at odds with the general idea of technology, which is that technology is abstraction. And so like even before electronics and the internet and everything, a tool, you're supposed to be able to just understand how to use this tool, not how the tool works or how it's made. You can drive a car without knowing how it works. You just know the interface to this car. Um, and so as we develop new technology and think about like, well, this is supposed to be abstraction, you're not supposed to understand how it works. Uh, what is the actual responsibility of people to understand how it works? Such a great question. I think that that view of education was very effective for the success of capitalism and global capitalism. And it did get us to this point where we have all these tools that we're using and that are creating, you know, systems of global measurement where we're all in sync. You know, there's a lot of a crazy coordination going on. I'm not sure it's going to allow us to survive as a civilization. Like, I think that way of thinking about tools and people got us to this point, but it can't get us much past this. So I think at this point, we need to think about education very differently. I think, A, we've thought about education in the past as either something you need to do for like 
job or for productivity, right? You like, you get educated in order to, you don't get educated in order to use a tool, but you do get educated in order to train for work performance, right? And instead, I think we need to think about education as training for kind of the whole human, basically to enable society to hold itself together, to have a civilization that doesn't self-implode and collapse. So I think as as the problems of our civilization become pretty existential um, and the complexity, like it's great we've gotten to this global unified point. I think that was actually quite important, but sadly the things that got us here won't get us to the next phase. So I think the maturity that we need to think about with tools and humans and education is that we have to actually start to have a view of users as participants in the process of building these tools from the beginning. And also I think we need to not depoliticize or deethicize education. I think education is inherently political and ethical. And I think tools are inherently those ways too. They are power um, operators. So when we re- retreat from an arena of ethics and we say, no, this is just, you just drive a car. You just get in and you drive it. And there's no implications of that. When we retreat from that arena of ethics, then what we're striving for is pretty partial. We might make things more efficient, but do we necessarily make them better? Um, So if we're claiming that we want to make things better in blockchain, then I think we have to actually ask ethical questions about education, which is not just about access, but like you're saying, it's about the nature of the choice at the point of choosing to use the tool A, but then what they do with the tool B. So yeah, I think without ethics, it's just really easy for it to become a super ruthless meritocracy and to just be making things super efficient, but not necessarily better. And how the tool evolves itself. Yes. I think the human tool coupling question in and of itself, I mean, outside of blockchains are really important one. It gets into AI dynamics. It gets into just the question of realizing that we're building these tools that then could help us become more self-aware. I mean, I think what what my hope would be that any tools we're building now actually ensure that we're more able to understand our own reality and not just our own, but especially with blockchain tools, which are network-based tools, that we understand more parties in the larger system that we're a part of than we ever have been able to before. Um, and that there's more ability to actually be accountable to a greater whole. So it's not just about individual sovereignty, it's actually about also collective intelligence and collective sanity. Yeah, so like this touches so many areas. How do you even like split it up? Because there's like the technical part, which is like we might want to make some protocol change, should we? Um, Versus like, you know, should we use this DAO to like fund this program or should we track this or not track this? How do people even like make these decisions? How how do you think that users should be involved in these decisions? Yeah. So I think that the reason Maiden focused on doing a user research lab is because we realized that there needed to be a channel. That we couldn't just expect all these small companies or large companies to suddenly have user intelligence or know how to work with users. That users were going to just suddenly infuse the company with there, meaning. There are no users. Right. Hey, thank you. <laughs> yes. Where are the users, right? And so we really saw there being actually an infrastructure problem. Like there needed to be a bridge from people into the makers. Users and makers needed to be, like I said, co-evolving, co-working together. The other thing that we know from tech research from Web2 and other things is that often the research is, I mean, research is like a dirty word. It like, you do it, you get a report, you put it in a drawer. Well, that's not useful, right? So the research partners that we've hired to do the global research methodology and, and train all of our, our researchers in what to do have been working with the Googles and Spotify's of the world on specifically this problem. How do you socialize the research into the company? What does it mean to find insights about how people behave in, in rural Taiwan 
and actually have that affect your business strategy meaningfully, not stupidly, like not like get you off on some strange tangent, but actually integrate it. And so the method of research that we'll be doing is very, very hands-on. It's both in the way we do the research, which is also very fast. So instead of taking three, six months, nine months to do some big academic research process, which might be interesting from an academic perspective, but doesn't help shape the company or make the protocol decision. So we do very fast research sprints in the beginning. And then the whole second part is the part that we do holding hands with and working with the CEOs and strategists and CMOs and CTOs of the company to actually understand the insights and integrate them into their um, process. So I think one is having research for short intelligence. The other part is just understanding that this is what we're doing. I think that we knew with the internet that there were data models that were being developed that were new and there were business models that were being developed that were new. The human model was just a default. The human model that was integrated into those data and business models was one of extraction. Humans are a thing you can extract value from. That's all that was really integrated. So if we are aware in all of our companies that there are three things that need to integrate, uh, your data models, your business models, and your human models, and that you, you don't get to use the old human model. So if you haven't figured out what your new one is yet, time to figure that out. And I don't think these companies can figure it out on their own. I actually think just like there was discovery work to do in cryptography and new protocols and new ways of working with data. Again, we need we have new data models in blockchain and some new business models that are forming. Um, similarly, we need to do that level of rigorous social science to find what is a non-extractive, simple, basic human model that will fit into the puzzle pieces of the data and business models of blockchain. And I think if I had to try to describe what that might look like at the end of the road, I don't know the model yet, but I imagine a world where, you know, today basically institutions make money by um, taking agency away from people. I would imagine we create something where literally institutions make money by giving people agency over their assets. So what would it look like if people were making money by giving you agency over your money, giving you agency over your data? Like the more agency you were given, the more money and scalability there was of this protocol. Yeah, I want to know how this scales with the like size of the sets because like when with data, if you think about like, well, I don't know how much my data is worth to like view this ad or something. On its own, it's worth almost nothing, right? Precisely. Like if I know that you looked at this ad, that's worthless. But if I if I have a data set of a billion people it's and more, I know yeah. who looked at the ad and who did it, which is opposite of most things that we buy. Like usually if you buy something in bulk, you get it actually like cheaper value per something. And then like data is the opposite. On its own, it's almost worthless. Yep. Um like Precisely. How- I don't know. Like I said, I don't know the model, but my point is it can't be extractive. If we if we keep an extractive human model we won't build something new. So that's a part of why we're starting to do research is to figure out, is there even? And frankly, if we do all this research and we discover actually there isn't a scalable, we still need the business models because companies still need to run. They still need to make money, right? So if we can't find a a business model that squares with a non-extractive human model, well, then we'd need to take a step back and ask ourselves, are these protocols even ethical, right? And are is it okay to build them? Or should they be regulated out of existence? Or should they be self-regulated out of existence? I mean, frankly, if we can't find a scalable, profitable business model that's non-extractive of human agency, then why are we here? Yeah, and then we need a whole new protocol. <laughs> we might, but I'd rather do this kind of risk mitigation questioning now when our industry is small. And I think, frankly, I'm super hopeful. We are small. We can affect ourselves at a DNA level. Um, we have incredibly creative people. I would love to see 
you know, hundreds more women and people of color involved in this industry. Um, someone at the East Denver event said something pretty profound. They said, you know, if you've texted someone today and like everyone raised their hand, right? Of course they had. And then they said, well, texting was developed because deaf people needed a way to communicate. When you have minority voices in a room, you end up with really interesting, divergent, emergent properties and brilliance, right? That's why evolution is so extraordinary. It's because the margins of things that work. But if we just keep getting the same kinds of thinking, so if we only have engineers and cryptographers um, and business people trying to design new human models, I guarantee you will stay pretty stuck. But I bet you if we get not just women and people of color, but people just of different intelligences, you know, philosophers and social scientists and artists and, and people who've really worked at communal levels at, in, in large local communities, shifting culture or whatever, and you start to mix some of those intelligences together and you actually get the brilliant makers in this system understanding users quickly. Like I have so much more faith in some of the engineers in this space if they actually knew what users wanted and not just what they wanted, but what they were capable of. You know, like I, I think that then they could design even better things. I think like that's where it gets interesting from like a protocol versus application level because mm -hmm. like you can make some protocol and then somebody does something completely like you had no idea. Yeah. And I think it's like really interesting to see those things develop. Yeah. How would you, as someone working more at the protocol and not application layer, what role do you see user research, I guess, playing in ensuring that your protocol develops with integrity? That's a good question. Yeah, um, and not that you have to answer it, but I think it's a good question for the audience is it's like, what intelligence am I missing to ensure that this scales with integrity and that it has kind of an immune system against corruption? That it's not just, it's not just like not centralized, but it's actually anti-centralization. You know, it's not just like, it literally has a resistance to the thing it's trying to bring forth into the world, to being co-opted. And I think there's no way you're not making some assumptions about how people behave right? Even at the protocol, you're making assumptions about how people will build apps on top of your protocol. Like what assumptions are we making and which ones really need to be validated or invalidated or shifted? And what unknown unknowns are you not testing? Yeah, this is where it comes down to like, um, like our ultimate goal is to make everything as abstract as possible. So you can put any application on it and it doesn't matter, right? And then like in practice, it gets down to the, the roadmap is like, well, we can only do this at a certain rate. And so it, when it comes to like, okay, we're going to release this version now, what makes the cut, what doesn't, that's where these opinions come in. Mm, right, and that's where the strategy might be helpful of a map of kind of where is this technology ready to scale with integrity? Where is there real need? And then where do you focus? Yeah, but I'm, it's interesting. I do, think, I do think it's worth thinking more deeply about at the protocol layer, just like with the internet, like what should have been done early on to protect against aggregation of power that happened at the application layer and the company level. Is there anything that can be done? And I mean, again, it's really hard because we don't want to be hyper paternalistic and like decide systems in advance and like create these rules, et cetera. And yet if we don't do anything, if we aren't aware at all of what our product or protocol does at scale, then we're already also being paternalistic because we're creating the space for chaos, you know? So I don't know. I think that's why I try to think about the general principles of like in technology, if you are building technology, human beings will use it. I don't care how deep down the layer it is. You need to be evolving it with users. Yeah, I would say like that's 
like our main guiding principle is that like we've implemented the tools to be able to change the protocol itself from within the protocol. And so to like shill Polkadot a little bit, but like, you know, we have this forkless upgrades feature where you can just completely replace the whole protocol via some governance mechanism, like a vote or whatever. And it just like upgrades itself to something new. And so not being like locked into whatever you started with and letting the protocol itself change. Right. So I would say if I were in Polkadot, I would be asking, when is this not a good idea? Right. Again, this like risk mitigation of just always asking, like, is there a what are the contexts when the way we're building it is threatening to its values? Because I think, I mean, you'll see with other systems, it's not a protocol, but it's an ideology. You'll see like meritocracy is incredibly kind of um, self-contradicting system. Like, you know, if you only value what can be measured, which a lot of times that's the idea there, um, then you get a system that optimizes for very specific things, right? Well, that could be at the expense of the whole system together, which wasn't the idea of meritocracy to begin with. Meritocracy wanted to create a utopia, essentially, right? So you get these like self-contradicting systems that like, collapse in on themselves. So it's like, okay, in principle, that's really great, but does this ever self-contradict or when does this self-contradict? And do we need a stopgap measure at that point, right? Instead of it being universal or 100%, like the purism, it's interesting, we're so anti-centralization and anti-establishment, you could say a lot of times in the way we talk. And yet there's like such a intense purity about like these principles. And I don't think anything in nature is quite so pure. I think it's quite gray and quite nuanced. Yeah, I was going to ask who has the stopgap? Who can do it? Well, that would be exactly the the designer's challenge is like, yeah, how do we identify when a stopgap is needed and then who implements that and how does that get implemented? And that gets back to collective intelligence. I mean, I swear to God, I think the biggest problem we have to solve in so many ways, blockchain or not, is how do we make decisions that are collectively intelligent for the whole? Nature's pretty damn good at this. I mean, it makes lots of symbiotic systems for multiple individual parts. Um, Our body does this, right? You don't have like one command and control center in your body. The reason it functions so well is sure, the brain operates a lot of it, but Not at all. There's DNA built into all of these cells and they're all operating with quite a lot of autonomy, right? Yeah. But not uncollectively intelligent. I mean, unless you get cancer, right? I mean, you'll you'll get the cancerous things that just run on their own without any feedback mechanism to the whole. And that's what kills you, right? Whereas we just love to design systems that have no collective intelligence and they, yeah, they're killing us. So I really, I really think the question of like who designs a stopgap is less interesting than how do we build a collectively intelligent protocol? Like what is it mean to build a collectively intelligent governance system? What is a collectively intelligent decision? What are the mechanisms that we need to put in place to get to that collective intelligence? And I don't think it's impossible. I just think it involves new processes that we haven't exercised a lot of. What do you like? So yeah, nature has symbiotic relationships, but it also has like forest fires and highly destructive um, Absolutely. Massive rivalry. What do those look like in protocols? It's a really good question. I don't know because I'm not a protocol developer, but I can just or give you... Or in blockchain in general, technology in general. Sure. Let me give the example of a natural one and let's see if either of us can think of a technological analog. So in a natural example, you'll have a predator and prey, right? But then you'll have the savanna surviving well. So you'll have gazelles and lions and lions are eating gazelles. The reason it's symbiotic is because you never have lions evolve 
their power at a rate that is vastly different from the gazelles. The gazelles will get smarter and the lions will get stronger and smarter. So you never get a lion that's 10x times stronger than the gazelles. Why? Because it would eat all the gazelles, which would kill all the lions. It would be suicide. So the symbiosis is for the whole savanna. It's for the whole system. The micro rivalry and the pain is, is, a, is a micro rivalry that leads to a macro symbiosis. And this comes from Daniel Schmachtenberger's work and is really interesting complexity theory about evolution. So in blockchain, I mean, I guess part of what I, I'm not sure it's the right analog, but part of why I keep stressing how are we co-evolving with users is the same kind of question. There's a power asymmetry. If you are building the protocol, if you are building the application, if you are building the financial model, you have massive information asymmetry and power asymmetry over the people who will ultimately use it. If you don't co-evolve with them, that micro rivalry, that micro difference of power will become a macro difference of power and it will eat the system alive. It will eat your original values alive. So I think there's really a need to make sure that the information and knowledge of what's being built and the experience and access to what's being built is co-evolving, is happening at the same rate so that even though you're not going to get everybody building the protocols. I mean, I know you might, tech utopians might think, oh, that'd be so great if everybody was just... I don't know, coding all of this. I'm not sure what, if that's the ultimate ideal, but that's not going to happen, right? It's we know that. I think. Okay, good. Not what you think. So yeah, let's be clear. No one really thinks that, right? We all know that there are different tools. So, and yet, if you don't end up with co-evolution, you're going to end up with something that is more like the lion being 10x times stronger and eating all the gazelles. And we'll end up with a technological financial reorganization of our global economy that was intended to create more meaningful, more transparent, more sovereign capacities for citizens. And in the end, actually just reconcentrates power and re-centralizes wealth without meaning to, because there's an asymmetry of information and an asymmetry of access. Yeah, this, it's not an exact corollary, but like, have you read Age of Surveillance Capitalism? Mm-hmm. Shoshana yeah. Zuboff, what a brilliant author. I know, it's amazing but like she kind of says this in like the first third of the book she's really hard on Hayekian economics and that like these principles were used by Google and Facebook to defend their principles or like their business models and like you know 2004 to 2010 range and it's funny because like she starts out so negative on this theory but at the end of the book like in the last two chapters she totally comes around and is like this is actually not Hayekian at all because like Hayekian economics says you just kind of have this like universal ignorance and like people kind of specialize in another thing, um, but nobody really knows what anybody else is up to. And then like all of a sudden these big companies, they're using Hayekian theories to defend what they're doing, but they're not Hayekian at all hmm. because there is a huge asymmetry of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really loved her book for describing the problem. I never felt the end of the book really matched the power of the beginning. It like, was kind of pessimistic. <laughs> it, was a, it was pessimistic and I just don't think she really gave a substantive answer to how do we respond or what do we do. I think the greatest point that she made was that this is like a new form of economics and power and that it, just like we didn't understand what totalitarianism was after the Second World War until we had Hannah Arendt articulate, like, no, this wasn't just fascism or authoritarianism. This is a whole whole new form of political operation called totalitarianism that we also don't understand what's happening today. It's not just capitalism, it's surveillance capitalism. It's a whole new breed. And so again, I think ideology really matters. And I think we would do very 
very well simply, you know, you asked earlier about Web 2, Web 3, to be much more thoughtful about what ideologies we're carrying into our work building these technologies and, yeah, which theories are at the root of what we're building and how do those theories work on the ground at scale and self-critical and humble. Yeah, and like, well, the thinking about that, which theories are applicable, uh, like most of the talk in the U.S. now is about, you know, can we break up these big tech companies? And it's like, well, sure, you could break up Google into a hundred different pieces, and okay, this kind of like it removes their power to just you know have a virtually or for all intents and purposes infinite bank account to just like buy out any potential competitor. But it doesn't change the fact that they can just share data between all these companies, and they Precisely. still have a huge information asymmetry. So like 1910s antitrust laws don't apply to 2020s surveillance capitalism. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also what what brought me into blockchain, like working in politics and, you know, it's not Google, but I would say that working with the U.S.-Israel relationship and working with the huge lobbies that fund the pro-Israel dynamic in this country and the role of the U.S. in the Middle East, I realized that we weren't going to necessarily be able to change it from the inside. Like I thought, oh, once you're in the belly of the beast, like, wow, once you're in there, you can get in and tinker with the... It's really very difficult to actually transform something that used to power and that used to hegemony, um, which is why I feel like we have to build something new from the ground up. Okay, this is fun, but we're already 10 minutes over our normal way. And we went full circle back to the why we're in blockchain. So <laughs> we're going to use that as the, the cue to exit. All right, well, um, it was a pleasure, Joe. Thanks so much. Yeah, is there any like sites you want to show like where to follow Maiden? Yeah, maiden.global. I mean, any user researchers or designers, strategists, CMOs, marketing people in this space that want to really make sure we're able to communicate the story of blockchain and create a new story of money, please get in touch. And any companies that want better user research informing their business strategy, we'd love to hear from you. All right. Thanks, Shira. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at RelayChain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. <laughs>